Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of Tech Swamp. We have our host and friendly membership team here today. Hey, Brad. Why, hello there. Why, hello. Caitlin, what is up? You know, just membership chilling. I do know. Uh, And of course, myself, Alex. This month, we are talking Standard Essential Patents, or SEPs, with Stephen Forte of member company Fresco Capital and Trish Thomas of member company Team. Before we're joined by our members, we're giving a quick refresh of what SEPs are and why FRAN commitments are so important. Before we get into that, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. October 13th, 1983, 37 years ago this month, cellular networks went live in the U.S. Launched by Ameritech, this was the first ever private cellular network in the United States. The first call made using this network wasn't the box phone you're probably thinking of. Uh, It was actually made from a car phone in Chicago. Fun (laughs) fact, Ameritech Mobile, now owned by AT&T, was awarded by the Guinness Book of World Records the, quote, most durable mobile phone number, thanks to customer David Contorno of Lamont, Illinois. David has owned and used the same mobile telephone number since August 2nd. Uh, 1985. And that's all for tech history. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in D.C. Caitlin and Brad, what are the top tech headlines? So this week, CEOs from Google, Facebook, and Twitter are back in front of the Senate Commerce Committee to discuss issues related to censorship and Section 230. But for a hearing titled... Does Section 230 sweeping immunity enable big tech's bad behavior? There was actually very little conversation about Section 230, and in fact, it took nearly two hours for a senator to ask the first question related to 230. Much of the conversation was centered around anti-conservative bias, particularly on Twitter and Facebook, as well as some conversations around election interference. This also comes after the Department of Justice's recent antitrust investigation into Google. For more info, head to the show notes. Some great news out of the FCC this week. It's official. TV white spaces are in for the fall. (laughs) All jokes aside, if you remember back in June, the FCC took steps to put forward an order approving the use of TV white spaces to help close the digital divide across the U.S. It was a great step in bridging the digital divide and put the FCC on track to take TV white spaces to underserved Americans lacking access to a reliable broadband connection. Well, this past week at the FCC's open meeting, Chairman Ajit Pai and the rest of the commission formally approved the order and report that they brought forward back in June, making the TV white spaces advances official. We applaud the FCC for its action on this important issue and look forward to the continued work. And rounding out what's brewing with the final election update before Election Day on November 3rd. Per usual, we're checking back in with the polls. Three out of the four most recent national polls show former Vice President Biden leading President Trump anywhere from 9 to 11 points, with one showing President Trump up by one point. And due to COVID-19 and the major increase in mail-in ballots and absentee voting, we should expect to see results roll in slowly between Election Day and even up to several weeks after November 3rd. For more on what to expect in terms of receiving the results, head to the show notes. And that's all for What's Brewing. As we mentioned earlier, we'll be chatting with members Stephen Forte and Trish Thomas about SEPs and what FRAN commitments mean to our members uh, and the greater app economy. 
But before we dive into that, we're going to run through the basics of standard essential patents and FRAN commitments. So Caitlin, what is a standard essential patent or a SEP? So standard setting in the United States is voluntary and is done with participation, but not control of the government. Standardized technologies underlie most of the products and services we use throughout our day. Think of things like Wi-Fi, USB, 4G, 5G, all that kind of stuff. So when a company volunteers its patented technologies to be declared essential to a standard, the standard setting organization, otherwise known as SSOs, require the patent holder to agree to license to any potential licensee on the terms that are fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory, otherwise known as FRAND. Now, the idea is that by having a patent included in a standard that everyone uses, like Wi-Fi, you'll see a much larger pool of people needing to license your patent. But this can also put that same patent holder in a position to block access to a standard. So if you manufacture an IoT device that's supposed to interconnect to the 4G network today or the 5G network of tomorrow, (laughs) components of that IoT device that use the standard, for example, the antenna used for that 4G or 5G communication, need to be licensed to you by whoever holds the standard essential patent in those standards. So in short, access to patents essential to standards equals the ability to even use the standardized technology. Right. And so that brings us now to FRAND commitments. As Caitlin just said, FRAND stands for fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory and refers to the terms in which a SEP license is made available. Without the FRAND agreement, the standardization process, which is basically a group of competitors coming together to pick winners and losers, uh, would be an would be an antitrust violation. A FRAND promise reduces the risk of antitrust harm by ensuring that anyone can get a license for standard essential patents in a standard and use that standard while providing a fair license fee to st- to standard essential patent holders. Here's where we get into the problem area. Unfortunately, subholders are breaking their FRAN promises and pursuing abusive tactics to squeeze people who need to use the standards for more than they are due through tactics like serial litigation, charging exorbitant fees for licensing, and sometimes simply refusing to license at all, among some other harmful practices. The real problem is the FRAN requirement is in place to address the antitrust problem of having a bunch of companies get together and select certain patented technologies and not others that must be licensed to interconnect. And this is where our members are affected. If a person makes IoT devices and there's no antitrust prohibition on SEP holders refusing to license to the chip manufacturer, in the short term, they're at best subject to ridiculously high license fees from SEP holders that don't reflect the actual value of the patented innovation invention and at worst locked out from even using standardized technology to innovate. Uh, in the long term, the SEP holders will run their competitors out of business. Our member companies build their products on these widely used standards. It's one of those areas where a balanced approach by government and court is needed to prevent anti-competitive abuse that results in less competition, fewer choices for consumers, and a narrower marketplace for products and services. But don't just take it from us. We're here uh, for a member perspective from Stephen Forte of Fresco Capital and Tris Thomas of Team. Hey, guys. Thank you for joining us on TechSwamp. Thanks for having us here. Hi, Alex. Happy to be here. 
Um, we are thrilled to have you. Um, okay, so before we dive into SEPs, can you both just kind of give our listeners a little background on who you are, what you do, um, and Trish, for you, what your background in SEPs is, because I think it's sort of interesting and relevant to the conversation. So um, Trish, I'm going to have you go first. Absolutely. Well, I'm Trish Thomas, and I'm the CEO at Team. We are a marketing agency located in Denver, Colorado in the U.S., um, and we work with a lot of tech companies. One of our key clients right now is the Air Fuel Alliance, and I'm their global head of marketing, and we handle um, all of their advertising events and promotional activities. And for those of you who don't know, the Air Fuel Alliance is one of the standards-making bodies in the wireless power industry. So we're a consortium of leading edge innovative companies who are working on advancing interoperable collaborative you know, standards for wireless power. So SEPs are a huge piece of what we do and a big focus area of the Alliance as a whole. Absolutely, that is very cool. Um, and Steve, you're up. Okay, great. Uh- <laughs> A long, long time member, first time podcaster with ACT. So yes, uh, <laughs> I've always wanted to say something like that. <laughs> but but um, I, I represent Fresco Capital based in Silicon Valley. And we also have offices internationally, which I guess is less relevant for this conversation. But um, Fresco is a global venture capital fund where we make investments in exchange investments into companies in exchange for a percentage of ownership into those companies and then traditionally we will take a board seat and work with those companies and then stay with those companies until they have some form of liquidity down the road and what that means is our value the shares that we purchased in that company become more valuable as they either do an ipo or get sold to another company and I am the managing partner there, uh, which means I'm one of the people who help run the firm, but also make um, the, the investment decisions. So we, we are looking at companies that have a lot of overlap with the issue with, with SEPs because the companies that we are doing are both hardware and software, and all of these issues come into play. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, we'll talk about this more and we sort of talked about it earlier in the podcast. Steps are just like this really important thing that people don't necessarily know how important they are to sort of innovation writ large. Um, And so I think it's really great that we're talking about it. Um, So, you know, now that we have sort of you know, figured out who you guys are. Um, I want to get into the nitty gritty. Um, you both just joined us for SEP week at AppCon. Um, that was just a few weeks ago. Um, and we're a huge part of sort of our advocacy efforts um, and shared some really valuable perspectives and insights about standards and standard central patents. So I want to recreate those conversations kind of as best as we can. Um, so with that said, hello and welcome to AppCon 20 Simulation. <laughs> uh, kidding, obviously. <laughs> um, but jokes aside, um, you know, Trish, can you talk a little bit more about standards um, and how you and the team at Team are really thinking about them um, and sort of how they impact what you guys do day to day? Absolutely. Happy to, Alex. Um, so I think where SEPs really come into play, particularly as I mentioned with Air Fuel Alliance, is that we've got these um, leading edge technologies that are coming together and you know we're a global world now. So things need to be interoperable. They need to work across different types of devices, um, different applications and products that are built by a myriad of different companies all around the world. And standard essential patents, or SEPs, are critical to making that happen. 
um, when you've got a company that has developed uh, a next generation technology, for instance, in let's say it's RF, radio frequency wire power transfer, there are a whole bunch of smaller businesses that want to be able to utilize that technology and often there are many different players that have different pieces of the entire technological ecosystem that's required to launch a new application into market. Small businesses don't really have the ability to reinvent those technologies. They don't want to. What they need to be able to do is access standards that pull together a suite of technologies that have been developed by a group of collaborative companies and can really advance the innovation broadly around the world to businesses large and small. And SEP agreements make it possible for all of these companies to get together and to you know, work together in a coordinated manner to follow a process, to have technology that's outlined, to understand the intellectual property agreements that are involved, all the pieces and parts, and have a very simple standardization and licensing structure that allows things, like I was referencing earlier, to be interoperable, to go to market quickly, and to keep costs down. Yeah. Absolutely. And I and I think sort of noting again and reiterating how important sort of understanding the small business role in that and sort of how um, small businesses are able to access sort of these standard essential technologies kind of does matter. Um, and so, Steve, I want to go to you because you obviously have a very interesting perspective um, kind of from the VC side of things. Um, and for anyone who isn't listening uh, or who is listening, geez, um, for anyone who's listening and doesn't know what a VC stands for, Remind us what that is. <laughs> yeah, I hope they're listening. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, VC stands for venture capital. Um, if, if I did not probably did not make that perfectly clear in the in the, um, in the introduction to Fresco Capital, like so, we are a venture capital fund. So just even a little more background is we we take you know we we have a pool of money and then we invest that money you know equally into like 20 or 30 portfolio companies so so you're right my perspective is unique for for two reasons is similar to Trish as I represent multiple companies as opposed to a lot of our members that represent just their own company and then more importantly thinking about what Trish just said importantly for me is I need to have companies that I can invest into. And in order for, because I'm investing in companies that are seriously two or three people that are in a garage, in a Starbucks, just like you hear about. And in order for those companies to be able to do it, they have to have these standards to work on top of. So without these standards for them to work on top of, they're not going to be able to build the innovation. So we don't invest in the companies that are building the standards. We're building, we're investing in the companies that build on top of those standards. So that's why having the protections in there are quite critical. And then from our perspective is, since we were talking a little bit about venture capital, venture capital is like venture capital is like myself. We have a very unique relationship with risk. If you think about it, my job is to place risky bets on companies and wait ten years for them to go public, right? So you could imagine if um, I invest in thirty companies, maybe only three or four of those will be winners in ten years, maybe still around in ten years. That's the statistics. So I, I deal with risk every day. However, the other thing that we have to do is then we have to manage the risks that are available or out in front of us. And standard essential patents are one of those things, if they're enforced the way they're supposed to be, would actually reduce the risk. So for example, I invest into a company, that company is using something that is protected under the under SEP. What will happen is if the ultimate group 
that built those patents can come after our company later on arbitrarily because something's not being enforced, that then just creates a whole amount of risk for myself. So for example, we have a company, the company's name is Compology, and they make an IoT device. And then they take that data and then they have a SaaS product or a software as a service product on top of that data. That device goes into garbage bins, industrial waste bins around the country. Uh, sounds sounds really exciting, right? Uh, we invest <laughs> in industrial waste. To be honest, it's my favorite company um, in our portfolio because of what it does, right? It, it, it gets all this gets all this data. It does a lot of great things, which you don't really need to go into here in the podcast. Um, <laughs> but what's interesting is they have um, certain things that take advantage of SEPs. For example, they have a 4G radio inside of their device. They also have um, a camera inside of their device. And then the camera and the radio also talk to a battery, right? So there's three separate um, SEP-based patents that are in there. So just want to say from our perspective, we look at this from two angles. The The starting is, if those standards didn't exist, Compology would never exist. And then I wouldn't have a job because I wouldn't be able to invest in those companies. And then I provide them capital and then they and then they provide more jobs, right? So like it's a, it's a clear issue of um, because of this technology, because of these standards of companies and innovations that would not exist. So in the early days, then they have to also have those components to be cheap. And the, the there has to be a flow of that license down because they are purchasing the, the 4G, the LTE radio and the batteries and the cameras from a component provider. The component provider is paying the, you know, the they're the ones that are paying the royalty on the SEP, not our company. So it's baked into their price. That that license has to flow down to the ultimate, you know, the, the people that are building those solutions, the companies that are building those solutions. They can't go public and then have someone like a Qualcomm come after them 10 years later saying that they owe them a billion dollars for some patent or some frivolous lawsuit in like East Texas or something like that. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I think like sort of also to tie these sort of concepts together, like um, the really interesting thing about standards, uh, standard essential technology, at least too, is that like most uh, patents that are sort of considered a standard, the innovator of that or, or you know, the, the patent holder uh, enters into this uh, standard setting organization voluntarily. So like, A, they've sort of volunteered to have their uh, patent be considered a part of this sort of standard essential portfolio. But then sort of B, um, there are, um, and Trish, please jump in here because I know you know this better than I do, but there is this concept of sort of FRAND uh, basically sort of licensing almost standards themselves. Um, And FRAN stands for, I believe, fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. And the idea there being that sort of you're entering uh, your patent into this sort of ecosystem willingly so that the small innovators um, that Steve is working with are able to tap into these patents and and innovate on top of them. Like, I think that innovation is so important to understanding sort of the the necessity of these SEPs because, um, you know, without sort of having these FRAND agreements within sort of the SAP ecosystem, it makes it really, really hard for, say, a company like Compology to be able to ever even like figure out where to begin from an innovation standpoint. Um, yeah, absolutely, Alex. I um, I think that what Steve mentioned in terms of, you know, what's critical for SEPs to actually rise to their purpose is that they really do feed a healthy collaborative ecosystem that allows products to come to market for consumers more quickly, more effectively, and 
typically less expensively than they would otherwise if all of these individual licensing agreements and patents were being negotiated individually. Um, and I do think that, you know, it's important for consumers to understand that SEPs are tied into the innovations we all enjoy every day. It goes way beyond things like smartphones or apps in the app store that might be some of the most in-your-face use cases or, yeah, like 4 or 5G, like Steve was just talking about. Um, you know, I know with air fuel, we're seeing, you know, SEPs come into play with um, industrial applications in warehouses oil and gas and new energy, um, robotics, drones, e-bikes, all kinds of cool places where, you know, to Steve's point, there's little pieces of standards and different innovations that come together in one product that's really important to people. And so SEPs are crucial, but I do think your point you brought up with Franz is, is very important for them to work the way they're supposed to. The bottom line is um, that if FRAND agreements are established appropriately from the beginning, you're less likely to have these litigations, um, these issues down the road with monopolistic behaviors if you truly are creating a mutually beneficial equation that everybody can enter into arbitrarily um, and really work together, then SEPs live up to, to the need. Um, when you get into a situation where a SEP maybe artificially inflates um, the value of one of the key anchor innovative companies or you're not seeing that flow down through the chain to small businesses and component makers and, and product manufacturers, then you can really have an issue where the SEP isn't enabling a healthy marketplace, it's stifling it. I wanted to add to what Trish just said because that's actually the critical piece is Put yourself into a um, small business owner or small entrepreneur's um, shoes. If they are purchasing a component, let's just use the 4G radio or, or something else, they're purchasing one of these components to go assemble their product. They're taking for granted the FRAND um, agreement, and they're just assuming that that SEP, right, that there's protection there that the component vendor is the one that has you know paid the loyalty and then the royalty and then that is just baked into the price that they're paying you know if they're paying 10 cents per unit 20 cents per unit they're just assuming that that that's just baked in these companies are really small i mean they're sometimes one person two person three person shops they can't afford the lawyer to go over some kind of contract licensing agreement with the component vendor, let alone the ultimate patent holder that goes up that chain. So if there's not a flow down the chain of the protection, there is a, a stifling of the innovation that these companies just won't get started. Um, so what's been happening is the entrepreneurs and the small business owners have been taking for granted that, that it flows down. And you've seen this amazing innovation over the last 10 years build on top of these standards. If that halts, we're going to go back to a notion of where it's very, very difficult to then start building these new products and building these new solutions, and we won't get as much innovation. Absolutely. And I think that's a great segue into sort of the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which is sort of, you know, in a perfect world, what does a SEP environment look like? You know, I think obviously um, people have maybe have been following the news a little bit and there are some court cases around this. I think that there's certainly an opportunity uh, for Congress to get involved, which is part of what we talked about during AppCon and SEP Week at AppCon. So I'm sort of curious from your perspective, um, you know, what changes could be made to really ensure that, you know, the the SEP licensing is really kind of going the way that it should, but also that large entities aren't taking advantage of the system and in this case, small businesses. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at um, some of the things that we talked about in APCON, which is actually the FTC doing an antitrust complaint. And then that antitrust complaint being, uh, I think it was against, I mean, I know it was against Qualcomm, and then it was right. overturned. <laughs> <laughs> and I think right. Similar to, are they, is Qualcomm listening? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, ultimately, we in the investment community, and then, I, again, I represent about, you know, um, we invested in about 60, 65 different companies. So I represent, you know, the companies that I represent. Um, you know, we want clarity on that, you know, whether that's another court decision, whether that's through other remedies in the government, whether it's a, an act of Congress. I mean, I don't think it would go as high as some of the other, you know, some of the other remedies would involve, you know, that would overturn the courts would be like a constitutional amendment or something like that, which is right. probably overkill. But ultimately, <laughs> one of those remedies would make sense for us to get the definitive um, answer. So then the liability goes away, the risk goes away. And then, you know, quite frankly, the entrepreneurs and small business owners can go about just um, taking for granted that these um, these licenses are flowing down to them and not having to think about it. Because right now they're taking it for granted, which is actually a good thing, right? But then right. If, the, if this, you know, um, FTC, you know, thing is not overturned, uh, you know, the, the decision that the FTC had that was overturned, if that's not r rectified, um, they won't be able to take it for granted anymore and then have to start bringing lawyers in at the two-person shop stage. Yeah, I agree with that, Steve. It's um, it's a really interesting case, and I think it's kind of a bellwether on where SEPs are going to go. I think we're all in agreement that they're really critical to driving innovation and pushing new technologies into market quickly and cost-effectively. But what we saw in the Qualcomm case is that the licensing wasn't being extended down to all of the various manufacturers, and the SEP was being leveraged to overcharge. And again, that defeats the core purpose the core vision for these SEPs, which is to make, uh, you know, standardized licensing available to people all throughout the ecosystem and to keep licensing fees and intellectual property issues very transparent and very cost effective to navigate. Um, I will say also that other countries and other markets are going to step in if the U.S. doesn't lead the way here. We've historically established policies and, of course, regulations and laws in the U.S., but policies that are more broadly followed globally. And you look at an organization like Airfuel, for instance, where many of our members are in Asia, they're in Europe, they're in South America, they're not all here in the U.S. If the U.S. doesn't lead the way and put some parameters in place so that we know that FRAND agreements apply equally to all, um, that SEPs are, are at least somewhat aligned to Steve's point, where small businesses who then accept, adopt that standard and enter those licensing agreements understand what they're getting, the market is going to get very muddied. Other countries are going to come into play with their own sets of regulations, which is going to be very complicated. Um, and, and we're going to find ourselves in, in a place where market innovation is hampered because of the uncertainty that's there. So um, while I know that the government doesn't need to overregulate everything, and I agree that like a constitutional <laughs> amendment would be complete overkill, I think that some understanding of what qualifies as a FRAND agreement that, that's fair and what qualifies as a SEP and what we're trying to kind of striving for on an industry level would be really helpful. And, and one thing what Trish just said is if we, if we as the United States drop the ball on this and then start having the other countries 
uh, taking up the lead, then we're going to start to see a fragmentation in the enforcement. And then it gets to be even worse than what we're describing now because the Qualcomm um, court resolution actually strikes the fear of God into my industry because then we feel like every company we invest, because sometimes we're going to these companies with you know, $100,000, $200,000 checks, and then they're worth billions of dollars 10 years later, like that strikes the fear of God into us that we, we can't create that value. Like we're, the, these companies are going to be gone, gone after later down the road. But then if you add on top of that a, um, a fragmented marketplace where you have enforcement over here, but different enforcement over there, you know, similar to the GDPR, CCPA type of battle that we're talking right. about, um, you know, that could just get very complicated very fast. And again, all that complication stifles innovation. Absolutely. I think that that's like the key, right, is that all of this leads into uh, whether or not innovation can continue at the pace in which it does. And the, and the answer is with certainty, totally. With uncertainty, you know, shrug emoji, right? Like, who knows? <laughs> exactly. um, so absolutely. Um, I, um, you know, thank you guys so much for joining us on this episode of Tech Swamp. I think that this is such an important issue. Um, and I'm really glad that we sort of were able to kind of hear your thoughts on it, because I think ultimately small businesses are really going to play a huge role in uh, both the future of innovation, but sort of in really making it clear why this is such a key issue um, so thank you guys so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Alex. No, thank you. And now it's time for our random identifier. Brad, what do you have for us? All right. We're actually going to go in a different direction today, and we're going to do some sport Whoa. ball because I know how much you guys like sport ball. Um, <laughs> but the, the other night, there was actually a pretty spectacular play that got me thinking. Um, someone made an interception in the football game and was running back for an easy score until a very, very good athlete caught. His name is DK Metcalf. He chased him down inexplicably, and they did some of the <laughs> stats after. And they said he was he got up to... 22 miles per hour running what? and i was no. like that is that is insanity to me so it made me kind of do a little bit of research like you know 22 seems pretty pretty darn fast i wonder what the fastest a human has run and it is 28 miles an hour which is what? just unfathomable to me i feel like i could run like 12 maybe um yeah so i thought that was crazy that is crazy that reminds me of the episode of The Office when Michael Scott <laughs> was testing how fast he could run outside where there was, like, that construction zone thing. Oh, my takes... God, yeah. <laughs> yes. I thought you were going to go, for some reason, I thought you were going to go with carbo loading and you were going to talk about the fun run episode. <laughs> <laughs> also a great episode for what it's worth. Yes. God, I have tears. <laughs> Um, Caitlin, what is going on with you? I'm guessing not just the office. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you'd be wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to talk about a little spooky, a little astrology. So Ooh. sorry to everyone who hates astrology. Um, spooky season, S-E-N. Yes. So um, as you may or may not know, um, Mercury is currently retrograde right now. And it will go out of retrograde on the 3rd of November. Um, which, which is election know, day. Is election day. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the last time this happened, the last time there was a Mercury retrograde on election day, it was the 2000 election. 
No. Yes. Fantastic. So, coincidence? Yes, probably. (laughs) (laughs) But also, Mercury retrograde, spooky. It's spooky. Vibes are spooky. We already know that the the results are going to be delayed just because of the nature of how this election has to go. So a lot of uh, the the astrologers that I follow on my favorite platform, TikTok, are predicting (laughs) that there will be a similar situation to the 2000 election where we're waiting for the results. Um and and some complications to follow so not getting political but getting spooky getting spooky um yeah this reminds me of our uh haunted tech twitter yes that happens during spooky month aka october (laughs) um because who knows right like technology is affected by mercury and retrograde right it is mercury is the planet of communication and technology according to the stars so So like, Be prepared. Spooky. Spooky scary. Spooky scary. Um, well, I'm actually going to sort of take Brad's place uh, on the music side of things. Um, although I'm not going to talk about a band, um, so not exactly taking Brad's space. But I'm going to talk about playlists for a minute because mm-hmm. I love them. I love making them. I love listening to them. Um, I love finding interesting ones. Um I recently just completed, well, that's actually a lie. I completed stage one of a playlist (laughs) um, because I'm a freak who, like, writes out long lists of songs and then, like, narrows them down and then, like, puts them together. And then, like, I have to put them in a certain order because, like, to me, the perfect playlist, like, you get this incredible flow where, like, you Mm -hmm. start in one place and then you end in another and somehow you totally get how you got there, even though, like, one playlist could have everything from, like, you know, typical indie music to, like, really intense gangster rap to, like, a punk song and then, like, end on, like, Dolly Parton. Um, So I'm working on one right now that is basically, like, original songs and then, like, the songs that sample those original songs. Mm. Um, Yeah, so, like, um, there are many examples from which I could choose, but I'm going to specifically mention um, that... MIA's very famous song, Paper Planes, uh, actually samples uh, The Clash. Um, But a lot of people don't know that. And so that's like a fun one for me. So anyway, that's what this playlist is that I'm working on. But I also want to give a shout out to the High Fidelity playlist, which has like such uh, an eclectic. uh, There are just so many great tunes on there. And a lot of them are not connected at all, except that they were all in the show. Um, So would 10 out of 10 suggest that people go check that playlist out because it's really great. I think also it's important to note that, like, I don't think that this pot that this podcast no that <laughs> this playlist behavior is anything short of amazing. Like, because when you think about like a true album and how a true album sounds, it has yeah. that flow. It has that you mm-hmm. start here, you end here, and it all is cohesive and makes sense. Yeah, you yeah. like you create like a an eclectic album essentially. Yeah, yeah. And that's I mean, what your playlists are. Yeah, it's impressive. I take it really seriously sometimes. Like, sometimes I just, like, throw whatever I want to listen to in a playlist and then, like, call it a playlist. But, like, other times I'm, like, very thoughtful about it. Uh, And, yeah, it's, like, I feel like I'm creating something even though I've done absolutely nothing. Like, didn't write any of the songs, didn't discover any of the musicians. Um, But I wonder if your IP could be protected, like, with the order of the songs you put them in. I don't know. I don't think so. However, (laughs) I do know that that's a job that people have at like both Apple and Spotify. And I imagine like Amazon where like your job is to like 
make playlists that are like interesting that's an amazing job isn't that such a cool job it's almost as cool as being a forager uh which is a job you can have at whole foods I think it's also just as cool as being the membership director at ACC. Yeah, well, that's the coolest job, you know, followed closely by membership communications manager and membership manager. So, like, you know, (laughs) hard to top where we're at, but, um, you know, like, great secondary options for, like, future Yeah, like, retirement plans. It's good to have a backup. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, guys, that's it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And of course, we want to give a shout out to Brad Goodall, who has composed the podcast Awesome Tunes. Thanks, Brad. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate and review. Five stars only, please. (laughs) And that's all for today, folks. Everyone say bye. Bye. Bye.